Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. This is Jeremy Kolodowski, and today we're studying Shabbat Tetzav, or page 15. As yesterday's page, we are in the midst of a long set of uh, discussions about laws of purity that were instituted by very, very, very ancient rabbis, even ancient according to the uh, the whole sweep of rabbinic history. Um, as we mentioned before, the laws of purity are quite uh, different from the way we practice Judaism nowadays, and that makes it a little bit hard to understand, both hard to understand practically what's going on, and sometimes hard to relate to. There are a couple of interesting points that I want to call your attention to. One is the discussion that the uh, ancient rabbis decreed impurity on uh, Eretz Amim, the land of the other nations. This means, in practice, that if, if sanctified food, food that was supposed to be eaten by the Kohanim, were to touch land from another country, it would therefore become impure, impurified. The, the reason that is given is, is interesting, but doesn't make a terrific amount of sense. It's that in, in the other countries, they're not particular about uh, marking out graves. We don't know exactly where the graves are. We, we should think that any, any of the land of Syria or Egypt, for example, might be, uh, might have touched a grave or been a grave or been the remains of a human body, and therefore, for technical ritual reasons, we should think of it as impure. This doesn't make a great deal of sense. First of all, we know that that's true about any place. What about 10,000 years before, 15,000 years before? Uh, but also, I think that it ignores a poetic element here, which is that they're, that they are trying to uh, valorize and to, to state the specialness of the land of Israel. And this is a, almost an ideological claim about the difference between the sanctity of the of the Holy Land and other lands. The second interesting part is that it refers to the idea of a of a glass vessel, which is by definition earthenware, since it comes from sand, uh, that has a hole in it. And, and, and earthenware is not uh, can, cannot be purified by dipping it into a ritual bath, but glass, it is said, could be. So how how can that be? That makes no sense. If it's earthenware. It can't be dipped in the mikvah. If it's not earthenware, it can be. And they say, well, we're talking about a glass that had been punctured and filled in with metal, filled in with molten metal. And it becomes, for that purpose, metal because, in the principle that is articulated by Rabbi Meir, one of the sages, not, not universally held, but Hakol Holech Achar Hamamid, the item is defined by the element which makes it exist, which gives it, which gives it standing. In that case, it wouldn't even be a glass vessel. It would be a useless something with a hole in it. If it weren't for the metal, hence, that becomes metal. And this is, it has a number of interesting applications, uh, such as for cheese, right? Cheese was milk, and something made it stand. There was some, some coagulant that made it stand, so we're going to define the block of cheese by what made it coagulate. Or you might def- define uh, a building by what gives it, uh, makes it stand firm. And that, that relates to a number of issues. 
But what, what I think is actually most interesting is the sort of imagined rabbinic history that goes on on this page. Uh, on this page, we talked about the, the fact that the people quoted are very ancient figures, Hillel and Shammai, and Shammaiah and Aptalion, even before them, and Yossi ben Yoezer, Yossi Ish Tzereda, people even before them. Where does this come from? What do the rabbis imagine about their own history? In Second Temple Judaism, there was a period of great ferment. There were a lot of really interesting groups and, and conflicting groups. One of the main ones was the Pharisees, known most uh, thoroughly to the world from the Christian Bible and to uh, and from Josephus. In the Christian Bible, the Pharisees are not very positive. They're mostly Jesus' adversaries, but they are the antecedents to the rabbis. The rabbis themselves of the Mishnaic time you know, the Mishnah is edited around the year 200, and almost all the figures who are quoted, they live at the end of the first, in through the second century. But the people who, who made the Mishnah, they didn't live, really, during temple times. And there are very few people quoted. But it is in the rabbis' interest, they want to, uh, they want to claim that their very innovative uh, style of teaching is actually directly linked, and clearly it is somewhat linked, but they want to claim a very direct link to the uh, to the, the t sages who lived in the pre-destruction era. Now, the rabbis never really speak of themselves as Pirushim, or Pharisees, but clearly they do want to link up their activity with some people who were famous Pharisees, and in fact the leaders of Pharisees in Temple times. And among them are, apparently, Hillel and Shammai, uh, Shemaiah and Avtalion, but in particular also the Gamliel family. Now Gamliel the first and his son Shimon, these are these are people who are attested by other documents. The Christian Bible, for example, says that Saul of Tarsus, known to the world as Saint Paul, was Gamliel's student. And Josephus mentions both Gamliel and his son Shimon ben Gamliel as Pharisaic leaders. Our page also talks about them and says, Hillel, Shimon, Gamliel, the Shimon were the Nisi'in, the, the, the political and intellectual leaders of the community in the hundred years before the temple was destroyed. And what's really interesting to the rabbis is the claim that they are the direct descendants, intellectual descendants of those people as part of an unbroken chain of tradition. The reality is it's very difficult for a modern historian to verify those things, but if you understand the rabbi's intellectual world, that's, that is a key claim. And Rabban Gamliel II, who lives just after the, the temple is destroyed, or during the destruction and just after, he is a pivotal figure in, in uh, the founding of the, the rabbinic style of Judaism, and he's very, very important, and our page seems to refer to... Um, him, perhaps, or more likely, his grandfather. Now, there's one passage here that is, that is really great that I want to that I want to discuss with you. There's the the claim Hillel and Shammai disagree about the amount of water that would nullify a ritual bath. A ritual bath has to has to be uh, a minimum amount of natural water. That is to say, either a free flowing spring or naturally collected rainwater. And if you before you reach that minimum amount. If you carry in drawn water, that is to say, taken out of a bucket, out of a well, or out of a, out of a stream and carried by human hands, that nullifies it. Hillel says it is a it is a pretty small amount. 
Shammai says it's a, a larger amount, but then come along two weavers from the Dung Gate of Jerusalem, and they say that we can attest in the, in the names of Shemaiah and Altalion, even earlier figures than Hillel and Shammai, we can attest that they set the mark at a very, very, very small amount, Shlosha Lugin, a very, very tiny amount would, would nullify, nullify the, uh, the mikvah. And so in a parallel text, in the, in a, collection of, of teachings called the Tosefta, this comes, this is explained, and Rashi cites that on our page, this is explained, why does it say that they were weavers, and why does it say they came from the dung gate? It is to tell you, says the bright, and with Rashi quotes, it's to tell you that nobody should give up studying, nobody should refrain from coming to the study house, because there is no occupation lowlier than weaver, and there is no place lowlier and more debased than the dung gate. And yet, the great sages, Hillel and Shammai, uh, deferred to these lowly people from this lowly place because they had an authoritative teaching. The rabbis have, if not exactly a democratic ethos, but they certainly do have this much of a populist ethos that you should be lomed mikol adam, that you should learn from everybody because everybody can participate through study and through the receipt of tradition from teachers. Everybody can participate in the practice of Torah. Everybody, this has been two weeks with me on Daily Daf Differently, and this is my last broadcast for now. I'll, I'll contribute to the next track date as well, but uh, beginning tomorrow, my friend uh, Rabbi Abby Sostom will pick up in the next week of Tractate Shabbat. Thanks for learning with me, and I wish you well. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One B, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.